Chapter Children of Barabbas Part 2 Outside the center hall, it was a beautiful day. The sun was shining through translucent altostratus clouds, generating a variety of pink hues. It was an awe-inspiring display of nature that would have left any observer with a sense of peace and serenity. However, for the children of Barabbas, this day was much more than an awesome display of nature. It was the day they had all waited for, ascension. God finally turned his head and gazed upon their small flock and blessed them. One by one, the hall emptied itself of its inhabitants. All the children of Barabbas, with their heads down, walked toward their respective homes. No one talked or dared to talk, for fear that the blessings bestowed upon them would somehow be withdrawn until... Mommy, look at the clouds, they're all pink, shouted a five-year-old holding her mother's hand. The mother continued to guide the girl but squeezed her hand harder so she could keep pace. Ow, that hurts, I just want to say. The mother, never once looking up, gripped her daughter's hand even harder. Be quiet, she whispered. Humph, not fair. The girl whimpered as she was practically dragged into the house. It was a simple one-floor ranch that looked more like three trailer homes joined together at the ends. One family lived in each unit, separated only by a long blanket sheet separating each room. The mother and daughter were unfortunate to live in the last section and had to pass through two families before they sat down and waited. A hungry mommy, the girl said softly, trying not to upset her mother. You'll have to wait until daddy gets here. Now be quiet. You don't want the others to hear, the mother said, stroking the girl's hair. She stared deep into her daughter's eyes and for the briefest moment felt dread and indecision. They were the age to make these decisions, but her daughter was barely old enough to understand what was going on. It wasn't her place to doubt the prophet or question God's direction through him, but as she looked at her daughter, I can keep my eyes open longer than you, said the little girl, thinking her mother was playing the eye-staring game with her. The mother cut the girl's face with both hands and drew her closer. I love you so much, honey. You mean the world to me, but, but mommy and daddy have to talk for a while. A tear ran down her face. What's wrong, mama? You crying? What she was going to do went against her beliefs and could jeopardize her eternal walk with God. But she couldn't in good conscience make this decision for her child. Without thinking, she stood up and opened the nearest window. Come here. She lifted the girl and gently lowered her to the ground outside the home. I want you to go to the general store next to the center hall and get whatever you want to eat. You can sit down and eat it at the table. Anything I want? Yes, dear, anything. Anything you want. Mommy will. Mommy will pay for it later. The girl paused. Can I get something for my friends if they're there too? Yes, anything. Yay. Bye, the girl said as she turned and sprinted toward the store. The mother closed the window, sat back on the couch, and didn't try to stop the emerging tears. Something deep within her cried out in objection for what she was going to do. But as she heard the men entering the house, she knew her path was set. It was her duty to see it through. Her daughter, on the other hand, would have to decide for herself. Chapter Another good question. The drive to New Jersey was uneventful yet entertaining as the agents enjoyed each other's company. Keiko and Brooke talked about everything and everyone. When they finally arrived at the Marriott near Newark International Airport, they quickly made themselves presentable, grabbed a quick bite, and then drove over to the scorched Iron Mountain storage site. At the main office, they met Detective Nick Hunter and Salvatore Vasquintel, the present administrator of the Iron Mountain storage facility in New Jersey. 
After the initial introductions, Detective Hunter allowed the two FBI agents several minutes to look over his report before walking to the security office. When they walked into the office, Brooke glanced at the guards trying to look busy at their desks, but knew they were briefed ahead of time of their visit. How busy can you be looking at a camera monitor? She thought. Mr. Vesquindle, is this where the fire department was called from? Asked Brooke, pointing to the security desk, which spanned nearly the entire space in the room. She already knew the answer but wanted to alleviate the tension in the room. When he acknowledged that it was, Keiko took over. Detective Hunter, she said, pointing to the security desk. Isn't this unit capable of automatically signaling the fire department whenever the smoke detectors become active? If so, then why was a call made? One of the guards moved uneasily in his chair. Keiko took note of it. It's in a report, Agent Carter. Detective Hunter snapped. Obviously, the Federal Bureau of Investigation didn't take this case seriously since they sent two female rookies, he thought. I know what's in the report, Detective, Keiko answered quickly. It says the system malfunctioned. Do you know why? I'm pretty sure Mr. Buswindle is on top of keeping this site well-maintained. Yes, uh, yes I, we, we are. The security systems are checked every other month. Everything's in perfect shape, he said defensively, not knowing whether Keiko was attacking his ability to govern the site. We checked the system, and the wiring was faulty, said Hunter, getting perturbed. He wasn't going to let an upstart agent get the best of him. No, um, that can't be, said Vasquental nervously. We have records of all our checks, and there's no indication of the wiring being faulty. Then it happened after your check, Detective Hunter countered. Has the wiring been replaced? Asked Brooke. Yes, of course it has. You can see for yourself if you like, Vasquental said, rushing toward the security desk. No, that's not necessary. Can we have the faulty wire so we can analyze it? Brooke asked. Uh, sure. You can keep it if you like. Basquintle sent a guard to retrieve the replaced wires. Detective Hunter tried to contain his embarrassment for not thinking of that basic investigative practice himself. Mr. Basquintle, do you mind if I ask one of your guards some questions? Asked Keiko. Sure, sure. But their statements are already in the report Detective Hunter gave you. Yes, I'm aware of that, but that's for the night crew. What of the day shift? Hunter cocked his head slightly. The day crew wasn't here when the fire started, he said. Keiko stared at the detective until he diverted his eyes. This was her investigation, and if he didn't stop getting in her way, she was going to make this very difficult for him. According to the police report, all night shift guards were questioned. However, the day crew wasn't. They were here as the buildings were still burning. Keiko turned toward the closest guard. They should be questioned. Hunter acquiesced. Now, Keiko focused on the guard who previously cringed when she spoke. Excuse me, sir, but what's your name? Victor. Victor Rivera, ma'am. The guard said, turning toward her nervously. Hi, Victor. Don't be nervous. I just have a couple of questions for you. Victor looked at the FBI woman and tried to relax, but couldn't. Her serious look and piercing eyes looked as though they could easily ascertain whether someone was trying to lie to her. He was afraid of what he might say, and the last thing he wanted to do was to say something that might put his job in jeopardy. Were you part of the night crew on the night of the fire? Keiko asked. No, ma'am, I wasn't. Is there anything strange about this fire that you can tell us about? Victor paused, looked at Mr. Bisquintle, and then bit his lip before answering. Sometimes I can't help myself, but I like to smoke cigarettes often. 
I always smoke it outside, Mr. Vasquendel, he added quickly. But several weeks ago, when I'd be making my rounds in the buildings I lit up. After a few minutes, I remembered where I was and put it out. But the smoke alarm didn't go off. They're very sensitive, and I thank God it didn't go off. Now I know they weren't working then. Victor looked at his boss, pleading, I'm sorry, I should have told somebody. But I was afraid if anyone found out I was smoking, I might lose my job. You? You? I'll talk to you later, said Vesquintel, glancing nervously at Keiko. Keiko glanced at Brooke. They understood each other instantly. Mr. Vesquintel, when was the date of your last maintenance check of the security systems? Brooke asked. Vasquintel rattled off a date. Brooke then looked at Victor. And when did you catch yourself smoking, Mr. Rivera? A few days after that, he said. Detective Hunter rubbed his forehead. The two FBI agents found something he had grossly overlooked. The other guard returned with the faulty wire and gave it to Brooke. Keiko spoke up. Detective Hunter, I'd like to send this wire in for testing. I'm curious to see how a perfectly good wire becomes faulty in two to three days after it was thoroughly inspected. Every step they took back to the meeting room, Mr. Gasquintel swore his maintenance check was thorough and that they weren't at fault for the bad wire. After another short discussion, Keiko concluded the meeting and tried to reassure Mr. Vasquintel that from her position, she couldn't see how the facility was at fault for the fire. The two agents and the detective left the building with Mr. Vasquintel, nervously biting his fingernails, mumbling that it wasn't his fault. It was still relatively early in the day as the detective walked the two agents back to their car. His original attitude toward the two had changed from enmity to respect when he witnessed how they uncovered the simplest of things that eluded even him. Detective, if it's not a bother, can you also have the night shift re-questioned? I'd like to recheck their stories, asked Keiko. Sure, not a problem, except for the one guard not working here anymore, he replied. We have his address and phone number. He shouldn't be hard to find. Good, let me know if you come up with anything. After shaking hands and verbalizing typical pleasantries, Keiko and Brooke made their way to their next meeting with Fireman Chief Inspector O'Leary. It only took a few minutes since his office was just a couple of miles away. However, after they arrived, they sat in his office for nearly 20 minutes while he was off somewhere in the firehouse, chewing out one of the captains. When he finally returned, he slammed the door shut, flopped in his chair and stared at the two attractive women sitting in front of him. He tried to remember who these women were and what they wanted, but his mind was still raging from his previous conversation. Look, I'm very busy around here. If you're from some kind of teacher's association, I can't help you now, he said with a thick Irish accent. He then flipped open his scheduler. Let's see, I'm not busy in. Oh, let's see. Next Monday's good. He looked up and smiled pathetically. Brooke looked at Keiko. Keiko wasn't going to say a word. She was going to let the man bury himself before she embarrassed him. However, Brooke, realizing the man was already teetering near the edge of losing it, took the initiative and flipped O'Leary her FBI identification. Get out, he huffed. You tour agents, I never guess. When did they start letting girls in? It was too late before the 50-ish, overweight Irish inspector realized what he said. One of his weaknesses was speaking what he thought and regretting his lack of control later. His face looked like a red pepper as he desperately tried to think of something to say to retract his foot from his mouth. Brooke motioned with her hand, smiling. Probably for quite some time now, but we can talk about that later, she joked. O'Leary caught the humor and relaxed. He looked at Keiko, who also flipped her identification before getting down to business. 
Chief O'Leary. Please, call me Devin, he interrupted Keiko. Fine, Devin. We're to talk about the Iron Mountain fire of a few days ago. My name is Agent Carter, and this is Agent C. Cole Lee. First of all, can we have a copy of your investigation report? O'Leary rummaged through his cluttered desk and produced a folder that looked as though it had survived several lunches and a few cups of coffee. Brooke gingerly took the file and quickly started looking at it while Keiko continued. Devin, in your opinion, of course, what do you think started the blaze? Well, let me see. He said, warming up to the female FBI agents. That'd be a very good question. Oh, where's our manners? Would you two like a cup of coffee? They hank. What? Yelled back a husky voice from a distance. That's quite all right, Devin. We're fine, said Keiko, not wanting to take a chance on drinking anything remotely associated with the unkempt inspector. Forget it. Nothing. O'Leary barked. Now, where were we? What started the blaze, said Keiko. Oh, yes, that'd be a very good question. Keiko tried not to roll her eyes, but she caught Brooke smiling while she continued to rummage through the folder's contents. O'Leary continued. That'd be a very good question because, well, Larry shrugged, we don't know. Um, yet. I see, but you must have some ideas, some possible scenarios. Agent Carter, ain't it? Keiko nodded. Well, Agent Carter, when we do an investigation, we make sure that it's done right, without jumping to conclusions, of course. Brooke put the folder back on the desk. In the report, she saw names of personnel, the number of trucks used to combat the blaze, and logged hours of firefighting. In other words, it didn't shed any light on the fire's origin. Keiko could see that O'Leary was doing a horrible job of dancing around the questions she asked him. He probably had an idea, but didn't want to commit himself as of yet. She leaned closer. Surely, a man of your importance would have some idea that can help the FBI in this investigation, said Keiko. O'Leary couldn't help but beam. The mighty FBI wouldn't have a case without his help. Maybe they could even use him as a consultant from time to time. This definitely would distinguish him from the others at his level. He folded his arms around his massive chest and pretended to contemplate the question deeply before answering. Well, you know, I've got these two ideas in me head that's been turning about for a while. You see, this was no ordinary fire. It's hard to believe Daw Fire started in one of the buildings and then jumped to several others. I know that the wind was blowing hard that night, but for all of those buildings to light up so quickly, when the fire weren't really burning that long makes no sense. Makes me think that each one started by itself. The only other thing that could have happened was all the papers spontaneously combusted. Keiko ignored the second theory. Where's your proof? Rubbing his chin, he said, let's see, there's been recorded cases of people mysteriously catching fire, but no witnesses have ever. No, 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 Keiko said, shaking her head and trying hard not to laugh. Your first theory, do you have anything concrete to support that each building caught fire independently? Now there'd be a good question, said O'Leary, started up again, but abruptly stopped. Keiko held up her hands. Well, no, Agent Carter, I don't have any proof, but we'd be still looking. Brooke took over as Keiko gathered her wits. What do you have so far, Chief? Devin? Ah, now that'd be another good question. Yeah, a good question and a totally ridiculous response that desperately needs to be retired. But Brooke. And, said Brooke, ignoring her inner voice. Well, nothing so far. We're still sifting through the remains, 
But when I come up with something, you bet you'll be the first to know, he huffed. Keiko looked at her watch. It was close to noon. Chief Inspector O'Leary, please. Devon, he interrupted. Please call us immediately if anything turns up. The FBI greatly appreciates your time and efforts in this matter. She continued while standing up. Both agents thanked O'Leary, put their business cards on his desk, and left his office. When the two left the building, they decided to break for lunch at a nearby Goulands. As they ate their food, Bert began to have doubts about the investigation. It looked as though they wouldn't find anything solid. No evidence of foul play, only a mysterious phone call, a surreptitious faulty wire, an unfortunate blaze that raged quickly out of control, and a chief inspector that probably has his picture next to the word simpleton in Webster's Dictionary. Her mind then wandered on to what sites she could visit while in the tri-state area. She was sure Keiko was also seeing how much of a waste of time the investigation was. However, little did she know that Keiko was analyzing the small tidbits of information they gathered. She saw every piece as a clue and a part to a puzzle. With each piece came more information, and with more information, a glimpse of the full picture. Brooke, do you still have that list of companies we showed Martin? Brooke gathered the papers from her briefcase. Here, what's up? I know yet, the whole thing doesn't sit well with me, Keiko said, with a mouthful of salad. She looked at the list and shook her head. Okay, said Brooke, let's look at this logically. Um, the only thing we have it is, oh yes, corroded wires. Hey, that should give Martin full justification to place more agents on the case. We'll definitely blow the thing right out of the water then. She took a bite out of her soy burger, and the food's still in her mouth, she continued. No, seriously, Kay, there's nothing here. Might as well write up the report and relax. You're just too tense all the time, and you need to let your hair down once in a while. Keiko ignored the hair comment and looked at the other customers in the restaurant. They were normal people having a good time, enjoying each other's company, and taking a breather from the daily rat race. She then glanced at a table of business professionals. They didn't know how to let go of their office problems. As the conversation became a heated debate over some important issue, she saw their inability to evolve outside their work and wondered if people from her job saw her that way. Yes, she was dedicated, but did that mean she'd have to sacrifice any chance of a social life? She looked at Brooke again. Yeah, maybe you're right, she said, paying more attention to her salad than to the list next to her. Brooke smiled. That's the spirit girl. Now, from what I can see, we can spend the rest of the day in Manhattan. Times Square, Soho, Chinatown, Little Italy. Whatever tickles your fancy. Then at night we can. Brooke rubbed her chin, thinking, Oh yeah, we can hit the Hard Rock Cafe and... Slow down, Brooke, Keiko said, smiling. Let's not go crazy, okay? Brooke slumped in her chair, her spirit temporarily crushed. Yeah, you're probably right, Kay. We should visit the NYC FBI branch and see what they're up to, she said sarcastically. New York City FBI, Keiko mumbled slowly. That's a great idea. How come I didn't think of that? She nearly shouted. No way. You're out of your freaking mind. If you think for a minute, I'm gonna. Keiko's phone rang, saving her from a severe tongue lashing. When she answered the phone, the person on the other end immediately started talking. Brooke saw the difference in Keiko as she stood up and left the restaurant, so she could get more privacy. After what seemed like an eternity, she returned and continued to eat her salad. What's up? Brooke said softly. Keiko finished what was in her mouth, took a deep breath, and looked at Brooke. That was Martin, 
seems to be a problem out in North Dakota about a mass suicide with some religious group. No. They're sending out agents from all over, and Martin wants me out there ASAP. Then let's get going. This is more important. Martin wants you to wrap up the New Jersey fire investigation by yourself. Keiko continued, without stopping. What? He said it's straightforward and simple enough for you to write a nice, concise report. Simple enough for me? Well, he can just. Brooke, I'm sorry. I tried to get you out there with me, but he said it comes from the top that only their top agents were to go. Keiko placed her hand on Brooks. I'm sorry. Well, I can't say I'm not disappointed, but right now you have something bigger than my bruised ego to worry about. Yeah. They both continued eating without another word when Keiko finally looked up. You know, something doesn't feel right to me about this fire, and I've always trusted my instincts whenever I'm on an investigation. I know you're not going to agree with me, but this is what I want you to do when you go to the NYC headquarters. When I go to New York City headquarters, Brooke said, slowly. She listened carefully, palmed her forehead as her metropolitan vacation slowly evaporated, and wondered when she'd ever learn how to keep her big mouth shut.